Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. They all came together with that great desire to utterly destroy Jesus. What was it that he did that so repulsed them, that that angered them so much? He entered into their sanctuary of power. When Jesus came into the temple that day, he entered into what they considered to be their house. But Jesus came in and he began to clean house. And as he cleaned house, he let them know, no, this is my father's house, not your house. As humans, we love to think that we control our own destiny. We think that we can make our own way and control outcomes through our own capabilities. As Pastor David shows us in today's message, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had taken over the temple of God and were exploiting it and God's people for their own gain. When Jesus came along, he disrupted that. He turned the tables and showed them how they were wrong. He does the same thing in our lives. It may be uncomfortable, but it's necessary for our growth. Now here's Pastor David with today's message entitled, The Beginning of the end. Well, we're in Luke chapter 19. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now. Uh, We're uh, in in Luke 19. Uh, A few weeks ago, we looked at the triumphant or the triumphal entry of Christ as he came into the city of Jerusalem. And actually, this is his last time of coming down from Galilee into the area of Jerusalem. We're only looking, we're, we're here in chapter 19. We've got a few chapters yet to go in the book of Luke 24 is uh, the number of chapters. So we've got a few chapters to go, but the next several chapters deal with about four days in the life of Jesus. And so here he has made that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this actually becomes the turning point leading to this final chapter in the earthly ministry of Christ. It's an, it's an exciting event for the disciples. It's an exciting event for all of the crowds as they cheered that day as he came in. But it was also a very clear reminder to Jesus that though he came to his own, his own truly didn't receive him. There might have been a lot of excitement on that day of the triumphant entry, but we're going to find out throughout this week that the whole mood begins changing as far as, 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 as people's acceptance and following of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of celebration that day, but Jesus well understood that fleeting fickle uh, mindset and the heart of people. And so he didn't, uh, again, again, commit himself in that way to them. They wanted him to take charge. 
they wanted him to come in and stand as the king uh, as he came in that day. They, they just anticipated that he was going to come. He was going to run out the, the Romans out of the whole country of Israel. He was going to come and remove the oppression of all the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders from all of the common people. That's one of the great fears of the Pharisees and the religious leaders too. They thought that he was going to come and just shake their entire world up. Well, he did, but in a totally different way. The people were looking, they said that they were looking for Messiah, but what they really desired was an earthly king. They desired an earthly king, but they so desperately needed a savior. And that's why Christ came the first time. He's coming the second time as that reigning and ruling king. But the first time he came a sacrifice and Savior. As Jesus wrote in that day, he knew the destruction that awaited all of Israel. He understood that they they stood under the judgment of God, not only because of their failure to be obedient to God over the last uh, 400 plus years, but also because even at that point in time, as he wept over the city there on that Sunday as he drove, he, he prophesied over the city with those words that because they didn't know the time of their visitation, days were going to come upon them when their enemies were going to build an embankment around them. They were going to surround them, close them in on every side, that the temple and the city would be completely leveled and that the people, including women and children, would be destroyed and there would not be one loan or one stone left upon another. Now when Jesus declared those words on the day he came into the city, he wasn't pronouncing a judgment against the city. No, he was simply declaring the judgment that God had already given the city. All these things were already in place and Jesus was just wept over them because he knew what was going to take place in just short order we realize that less than 40 years from that day of his triumphant entry, as a matter of fact, in 70 AD, Titus and the armies of Rome came in to annihilate all of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Titus came in, he came in with the the 5th legion, as well as the 12th legion, as well as the 15th legion, and they were all on the western side of Jerusalem. And then the 10th legion on the eastern side up on the Mount of Olives. They they built an embankment and they sieged all of Jerusalem. They wouldn't let anyone go in or out of Jerusalem. You couldn't escape from it, nor could you get uh, uh, additional help or supplies coming in. The siege lasted for almost five months cutting off all of their supplies until finally they came in and they completely destroyed not only the temple, but all of Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, they overtook all of Israel and punished the Jews. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian of the time, said that during that attack of Titus and the Roman legions that came in, that over 1.1 million people were killed. Some say, wow, that's, that's, just, that's just unbelievable. But you need to understand that all that was going on and, and all of the politics and all, all of the culture of that day that was happening, the Romans were so sick and tired of the Jews. And if there was any resistance at all, 
boom, off with their heads. They, they'd split them open. They, they would destroy them. There was, there was a viciousness that came in that attack that was just un, unbelievable. About 97,000 of them that offered no resistance, they were captured and taken into captivity and enslaved. But all of that takes place later than what we're going to be looking at today. It takes place sometime, well, about 40 years in the future. As we look at today's passage, here in chapter 19, Luke's gospel message, after Jesus has entered the city, he then goes into the temple. And probably more than any of, uh, of the other actions or words or deeds that Jesus did, what he does here in the temple sets the ire and, 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 and the anger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin so vehemently against him that now this, these groups and, and sects of Israel have gathered together. Normally they didn't play well together at all, but because it was one common enemy, now they all came together with that great desire to utterly destroy Jesus. What was it that he did that so repulsed them, that, that angered them so much? He entered into their sanctuary of power. When Jesus came into the temple that day, he entered into what they considered to be their house. But Jesus came in and he began to clean house. And as he cleaned house, he let them know, no, this is my father's house, not your house. For years now, the temple had been a place, uh, a place of extortion, a place of absolutely empty worship. It had become the, the center court for, for an abundance of religious abuses against the common people. The common man coming in in true devotion to, to Jehovah, coming in to worship there at the temple, he was going to be met with all kinds of obstacles, blocking his way from ever experiencing any true spiritual connection with Jehovah. When you come to church, the hope, that the thought, the attitude is, is, man, I want to hear from the Lord today. Hopefully that's your attitude. That's why you came today. Not just because you wanted to uh, see a baptism or, or sing some songs or hear some guy up here ranting and raving. You, you wanted to hear from the Lord today. And when they would come to the temple with that desire, there were so many things, so many blockades that they had to get through long before that could ever take place. What a difficult thing was. The courts of the temple had literally become like a street fair. They had become a, a bizarre bazaar, okay, as you go in. So many things that were going on. Vendors were, were selling souvenirs. There were, uh, vendors were selling sacrificial animals. Vendors were selling food. Hey, you've been on a long journey. Hey, we got corn dogs over here. Come on over. Well, probably not corn dogs. Kosher, maybe. But uh, <laughs> They would, again, they, they, they would be selling all of these things to the, to the people. And, and every bit of it, man, was, was uh, uh, in excess. They overinflated, exaggerated prices. And the poor common people, man, they didn't have, uh, you know, they had no other way. This is the only game in town. This is the only thing you could do. And not only that, but, you know, the, the money that you brought from Galilee, you can't use that here in the temple, you got to go to the money changers tables and you've got to take your other money and you got to change that to the coins that are usable here in the temple. And so they were getting them and gouging them at that point too. So by the time you came in there and you did everything, you were just exhausted. In many ways, the temple became a, a, a tourist destination more than the focus point for the end of a pilgrim's journey. The priests served as guides even, providing tours for a price. 
of the premises of the temple. And at that point in time, they were actually letting the common men come into the temple area where only the priests were allowed. Not the Holy of Holies so much, but just even into the regular temple area. All of this going on just for a little bit of extra money because these priests were gouging the people every chance that they got. That's the scene that Jesus walks into today in Luke chapter 19, down in verse 45. Look at it with me if you would. Luke 19, verse 45. It says, then when he, speaking of Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Although the other gospel records record this event, uh, probably one of our best detailed comes from actually Mark's gospel record in Mark 11. You don't need to turn there. There's only a couple of things I want to bring to your attention in Mark 11, beginning in verse 15. Mark writes, so they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple. He began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So in other words, all these guys that were supplying all of these tables, that were, he said, no, you, you can't go. Yeah, can you imagine the chaos that suddenly came in. Now, you're already in a place of chaos. How many of you go to like the state fair? Uh, yeah, I, I don't either anymore. Uh, it's crazy, it's insane. Uh, imagine that, and in the middle of the state fair is the temple. But you gotta go through all of this and this mass of people running. Every, that's what Jesus came into. And he starts clearing it out. He starts clearing it out, knocking over the tables, driving people out. Hey, don't bring that stuff in here. Get out of here. The authority and the power of Jesus at that point in time got people's attention. There's absolutely no doubt about it. This temple there that Jesus was at at this point in time was what was called the second temple or by a more familiar name, Herod's temple because the first temple, Solomon's temple, it had been destroyed back in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces came in and destroyed the temple and took the children of Israel into captivity into Babylon. And then through the years, Babylon fell and the Persian Empire raised up and Cyrus, the Persian Empire uh, leader, finally gave the authority and the power and finances for some to go back and to begin rebuilding the temple. And so uh, they, they, they were allowed some 70 years later, after 586 BC, they were allowed to go back, Ezra and Zerubbabel and some of the other forces, they were able to go back and start rebuilding the temple. Fi finally, around 516 uh, BC, they dedicated the second temple. But you need to understand, that's not the temple that we see pictures of. This was a very small, very unornate, uh, um, very poor looking temple because again, they didn't have the finances to build the splendor of what Solomon built, nor was it anywhere near what Herod would do later. This second temple built by Ezra, Zerubbabel, and those that assisted during that time, it could, it could never compare to the first one. Much smaller, much less elaborate than the first. And more than that, according to the Babylonian Talmud, 
the second and the lesser temple lacked what's called the Shekinah, the glory of God. Not only that, but the Babylonian Talmud said that it lacked the Rosh HaKodash, the Holy Spirit of God. It was a building. That's all that it was. Can you imagine? For those who had seen the first temple, and now they see it, no wonder they were weeping and crying when they saw, that's it? That's it? But that's what they had. And yet, even with all of the deficiencies, for almost 400 years, the Jews continued there. And they used that second temple as a place of worship and a place of sacrifice. Then in 63 BC, still 63 years before the birth of Christ, with the Romans in control, Herod, who was in control, begins this huge building uh, campaign. And he's going to leave a legacy of all the things that he built. And even today, when you go to Israel, you can see different things where, where Herod had, had put his name on these buildings, these magnificent things. In, uh, in, during that time, uh, Herod took that small, that unimpressive second temple and he actually, in, in, in an effort to appease the Jews, but more than appeasing the Jews, to make a name for himself, he turned that second temple into one of the largest construction projects of the first century B.C. Josephus records for us that the temple of Jerusalem was Herod's great masterpiece. It was a beautiful, beautiful edifice. I mean, ornate and just absolutely gorgeous things. You've, you, could, you can go on the internet and look at artist renditions. You won't see the real thing. Uh, you can look at artist renditions of what they feel that it looked like, just absolutely beautiful. But you know what? It didn't have the glory or the spirit of God. It was just still as beautiful as it was. It was filled with ritual and religious ceremony even to the point to what it evolved to at the day of Jesus. This street fair attitude, this bizarre, nothing to do with the Spirit of God, but everything that had to do with making money for those religious rulers that were there. They charged exchange fees, they charged excess for all of these things. That's why Jesus says, you've made this whole place a den of robbers pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem, he'd go to the temple. He'd exchange the money there at the, for the, the temple coins. He'd buy an animal, and usually by that time, it wasn't a pure, spotless animal that he was buying. A lot of times, it had a variety of faults or sicknesses, but the priest would say, that's okay, that, that, that one will do. Sell him, because I need to make money off of him. Oh, yeah, that's okay. He's, he may be lame, but that's okay. You can sell him as a sacrament. We'll, we'll give an extra uh, blessing over him or whatever they would do. So these pilgrims would come and they, they would buy these animals far from being what God had required for them. They would then offer that, that animal as a sacrifice without having anything to do with that animal personally. And this led to a great impersonalization a whole loss of meaning to the entire sacrificial system, just going through the motions. The sad thing is, how many people week after week after week after month after month after month after year after year after decade after decade go through the motions as they go through churches today? 
They go, why are you here today? Oh, it's my habit to be here on Sunday. I just go through the motions. Does it mean anything? Does it impact their lives? Does it, does it encourage them? Does it challenge them? Does it change them in any way? No, I've been going through the motions, been going to the same church for decade after decade after decade, and it really, I'm not, I'm not challenged here. It's just kind of the convenient thing to do. And you see, that's what was going on with the temple during that time. It was empty. It was so meaningless. One of the other things that you need to know about what's going on here during Jesus' time, this whole commercial enterprise was taking place in what's called the court of the Gentiles. The one area in the temple where that, that was designated for Gentiles to be able to come in and pray and to learn about the God of Israel, to learn about Jehovah, the one true God. There, the, the Jews could witness literally to their pagan neighbors. They could tell them about that one true living God, but instead of being devoted to evangelism, that area was now changed to be a religious marketplace. And so Israel's witness to the surrounding world was wiped out for financial gain. What a sad situation that is. As I read and studied this section of Scripture, I couldn't help but wonder what the Lord thinks when he sees our churches in the Western civilization today. Lord, what do you see when you look at us? Us, yeah, in particular, but all of the Western culture. What, what does the church truly represent? Is it ritual and and ceremony, empty of any real personal connection with God when people come through these doors? Is it something that they come in and, and they're continually being uh, asked and, and begged for money for this and money for that and, and again, just pounded and pounded over things and it's just a ritual, just a ceremony coming in? I wonder what the Lord thinks. Are we really a place of prayer and worship or have we declined to be a place of simple religious ceremony? Is the church filled with the designs and the plans of man? Does the church simply offer entertainment with the correct lighting, music that's focused on man's delight rather than glorifying God in the midst of it? The question I have to ask is, whose house is this? Whose house is this? I know you don't mean anything by it, but every once in a while, some of you actually who have been going here for years will speak to me and say, well, pastor, your church, and then you'll go on with, and think, no, it's not my church. It's all y'all's church, okay? I was in Austin last week, okay? Give me a break. <laughs> but more than that, it's our Father's church, and we're just a portion of that. The Pharisees thought it was their house to do with as they pleased in any way that they pleased. But Jesus came in, he threw out the marketplace, and he declared its rightful owner. This is my father's house. And he did it, and he began to teach the people the truth about the father and about the father's kingdom. Luke tells us as we go on here, verse 47, that he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. They were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. 
Uh, Mark brings out the fact that the scribes and the priests, they, they feared him because of all the people that were astonished at his teaching. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. David will continue teaching through the Gospel of Luke next time. Now we want to encourage you to become a Facebook friend with us. Log on to theopenword.com. You can also subscribe to The Open Word podcast at theopenword.com or search for The Open Word in the iTunes store. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to The Open Word podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to theopenword.com and subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Again, to become our Facebook friend and to access the archive of messages, log on to theopenword.com. Now here's Tracy with information about how you can help partner with us. We all know it's vitally important to support the local church, the place we call home. But it's also very important to support missionaries. Have you ever considered that The Open Word is a missionary work? It is. We need your support as we share God's Word over the airwaves. Please prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word. Go to theopenword.com and click on the support option in the main menu. We invite you to join us again for the next study as David shares insights with us from the Gospel of Luke. That's next time on The Open Word.